Um, but this, this week, we, we continue our journey through the book of Acts. Again, not chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but highlighting some of the major events in the life of these early Christians, these people that um, experienced the kind of bizarre happenings on Pentecost. They received the Spirit. They had received a mission telling them to go into the world and make disciples. And then the book of Acts basically says, okay, so then what happened, right? Um, and so that's kind of where we're at. Um, and as we start our, this, this message today, I, I want us to, to go back um, to the year 2000, um, which doesn't feel like it should be 21 years ago. Um, but it is, I guess. I don't know. Some of that's what they tell me. Um, in, the, in January of 2000, I had the opportunity to travel with a group from Olivet to Israel, uh, one of these educational trips, tour guide and all that stuff. And one of our stops was the Dead Sea. Are you guys familiar with the Dead Sea? Have you heard? So it's not like a, a major part of the Bible. Like, I don't even know if it's actually mentioned specifically um, by name as the Dead Sea in there. But it's a big part of, of Israel, right? Like, it's you go on a trip, you're going to go to the Dead Sea. And it's famous today because the minerals that come out of there are, like, really good for your skin or something. I guess, I don't know. People pay a lot of money to rub stuff on their... Uh, well, anyways, um, <clears throat> the kind of novelty of it, though, is because there's so much mineral in this water that you float, like, higher than you normally would. Have you guys seen pictures or videos of this? I probably should have had pulled up a video to share with you guys. But I remember when I went as a sophomore in college, and there was a guy reading the newspaper while floating on top of the Dead Sea. And I was like, this is really kind of bizarre. Um, and what I learned when I went there was that beyond just being the Dead Sea because things can't grow in it, which is what I always thought was why he called it, because there's so much salt and stuff in there that it was just deadly, right? And that's why they called it the Dead Sea. But the reason that it was called the Dead Sea was because of its physical uh, location and situation, right? So it is below sea level, significantly below sea level, and yet water doesn't flow into it from anywhere. There's no rivers or streams that feed and fill the Dead Sea, and there's no rivers and streams that come out of it. It's basically stagnant. And so it's the Dead Sea because there's no movement. There's no life coming into it or life going out of it. And so it's just what it is. It received water at one point in time, and the reason why there's so many minerals in there is because water evaporates and it leaves behind these salts and minerals, but there's no new water coming into it. Now, in the Bible, there's an image that contrasts this Dead Sea, and we hear people talk about it from time to time. Jesus even mentions it, um, this idea called living water. Now, in, in Old Testament times and in Jesus' day, living water uh, had a specific, it was a technical definition. It was water that had a source that flowed into an area and then flowed out of an area, right? You know those, those puddles that are out in our yards right now that'll be awful in, in a day or two? Or these ponds that form in people's yards or ditches that just don't move? In a couple days, they're going to be nasty and stagnant and smell bad, and the leaves and grass clippings and all stuff will just be there. And it's, That's not living water. Living water has a fresh source that comes in and brings new life and washes away and cleans and purifies and goes someplace else. And so part of the, the ritualistic cleansing process in the Old Testament, when they talked about going to the temple and being washed or being prepared for a sacrifice or prepared for a feast day or whatever, they had these mikvah baths, 
So it was kind of like a small pool or a bathtub or just this little uh, space where you could go and wash and get cleansed. But what makes these mikvah baths, they're kind of like our baptismal pools here, but what makes them different is they had to have a freshwater source that came into them, and then they had to have a place that they flowed out to. Right? So it was this idea of living water coming in and washing away and bringing new life. The ancient Israels had this idea that dead things don't move. Things that, alive, that are alive move. They take in new things and they let go of things and they, they have transitions. And so I want to keep that in mind as we turn to the story of Peter in our scriptures today. It's Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 22, and then we're going to jump to verse 27. Uh, But it's in Acts chapter 10, and honestly, it's it's the same scripture that our kids are learning about in junior church today. Funny how that happens, Um, talking about planning ahead. Um, So follow with me on the screen or in your Bibles or your Bible app or whatever you may have available to you. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds, and then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about this vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Go up and, or get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. We're going to jump. Verse 27 says, While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, the story of Peter, one who has wrestled with what it means to follow you. Father, if anything comes from the story of Peter, we learn that even the most confident, even the most bold of Jesus' followers will struggle uh, to always know what's going on. And so, Father, help us to take away from this story how to be like Peter, not in our Abundance of always knowing what to do, but in our abundance of being willing to let you guide us. May we be like Peter and hear the invitation to go, to do what God has sent us to do, and to follow in faith. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. 
Right, so Peter, right, we've, we know the story of, of Peter in the, in the gospel stories. He kind of has this on again, off again, doing really good following Jesus to not doing so great following Jesus. Um, but it, it, he was what would have been known in the Torah or in the Bible as a Torah observant Jew. So it meant he followed the Torah, the law, the teachings. It means he strictly kept the teachings of the law as interpreted through the generations. So it's not only did he follow the, the teachings and the law as written, but through the generations they interpreted and tried to understand these teachings all the more and apply them to their lives. And Peter was one that tried to follow these teachings closely. There was very specific guidelines in the Torah as to what food was clean and acceptable and which foods were not clean and acceptable. If you've ever heard the word kosher, that's where this idea comes from. It means that foods, uh, kosher are foods that do not violate these laws in the way that they were prepared, acquired, presented, and eaten. They don't violate these rules. And a lot of this idea comes from Deuteronomy 14, and I'm just going to provide just a quick taste as to what some of these kosher uh, guidelines are. Again, this is Deuteronomy 14, way back in the Old Testament. <coughs> it says, do not eat any detestable thing. That's a good start. Um, these are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has divided hoof and chews the cud. However, of those that chew the cud or have divided hoof, you may not eat the camel, the rabbit, the hyrax. Although they chew the cud, they do not have divided hoof and are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. And if you skip some verses ahead, uh, the teaching continues. It says, do not eat anything you find already dead. That's helpful. Um, you may give this dead thing to the foreigner residing in your towns, and they may eat it, or you may sell it to them. Uh, but you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And that says, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. So 4,000 years ago, God's people were instructed not to cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And after generations and generations of trying to figure out, well, how does this apply to this situation? Like as practices changed, as traditions changed, as um, moved away from being nomadic shepherds to a more settled agricultural and then even urban people, how does this apply? And so people ask these questions of the teachings. Well, if God didn't want us to do that then, what does God want us to do now? And so you end up now 4,000 years later with kosher kitchens, in which you have two of everything so that your meat and dairy preparations don't overlap, right? Um, this is kind of how that one verse back 4,000 years ago has turned into a whole lifestyle um, today. And the law of God, as it was understood, prohibited all kinds of food is unclean. But in Peter's vision, God instructs him to eat the very things that the law of God told him to avoid. He's never eaten this unclean food. It's a source of his pride. It's a source of his righteousness. It's the foundation in which he thinks he is being faithful to God. And in this vision, God shows up and tells him to eat these unclean things. And Peter was trying to tell God no because of the law of God. You see the conflict that's happening here. 
He was resisting a new word from God because of an old word from God. The Bible says he denied God's request three times. And if you know anything about Peter and denying God three times, there's a bit of deja vu moment here where he denied Jesus three times. So then the Spirit sent Peter to go meet some Gentiles. Gentiles means non-Jewish. So if non-kosher meant unclean regarding food, Gentile meant unclean regarding people. So do you see what's happening here in this vision, in this story? Right? This vision was about food and kosher laws, but it wasn't just about food and kosher laws. It was about God continuing to show up, revealing himself more clearly. Was Peter the one who spent his entire life chasing righteous and religious purity through observance to this law? Was he willing to hear a new word from God? Was his faith in the God who gave the law? Or was his faith in the laws themselves? And that was the question for Peter this day. So in verse 27, you see Peter saying it was against Jewish law to associate with or visit Gentiles. He says it's against our practices, our teachings, it's against our law for me to go into this house and associate with you. But then he walked into the house anyways. So how does a Torah-observant, righteous, and pure Jew throw everything out that he's been taught about following God? Everything that he's believed, everything he has practiced his entire life, probably his family has practiced their entire life, generations have followed these laws, and in one moment he walks into this house and throws it all away. Peter learned something that I hope that we can learn today. And I need to warn you, this lesson that Peter learned is a hard lesson to learn. I've been struggling with it for years. The lesson of Peter for us today is that we need to, and I'm going to have these guys put it on the screen if they will. I've got a slide for this. To be open so you can hear what God is calling you to do. You need to be open so you can hear God calling you to again take your next step. Do you think God is still calling you, still forming you, still teaching you? <coughs> or do you think you've arrived already? Do you think God is still showing you who he is and who he means for your life? Or is God done with you? Is your faith and life a finished work at this point? If you remember how we opened the message today with our picture, our example of the Dead Sea, the Bible has a word for things that don't move, that don't take in new life. It calls them dead. Things that don't receive new breath, new energy, new sustenance, new nutrition, the word for that is dead. So the idea for us today, the lesson that we need to learn from Peter is that we need to be open so we can hear God calling us again to take our next step. When I was 16, I'm not going to sing a song, so let's not do that. Um, <laughs> I, will, I will stop for a second. There, I know everything on the platform looks exactly like it has for a long time, but everything on the tech side of things is new like brand new, and we're learning, and so um, we appreciate all the hard work that they're doing to, to help us minister, not only in our sanctuary, but online, and so it creates some hiccups and some growing pains, but uh, they're, they're rock stars back there, and they're going to have us uh, doing amazing things um, going forward. 
But when I was 16 years old, my dad had a heart attack and passed away. It was sudden and it was unexpected. He didn't have a history of health issues. He didn't have a history of heart problem. And so at 16, I found myself with my sister, who was a few years older than me, and my mom at home grieving this huge loss. And we didn't grieve in the same way or at the same time, but eventually we all found ourselves being angry, being disappointed. And in that process of of living together, going through this grieving process, we hurt each other. Mostly because we couldn't fill the hole in our lives that my dad's passing left. We had unrealistic expectations for one another. We needed help that we weren't getting from one another. And during one of those moments where my mom and I failed to see eye to eye, we'll put it, um, I hopped in my truck, tears in my eyes, angry about nothing, angry about everything all at once, and I drove to the cemetery where my dad was buried. I don't know if I was looking for answers or looking for something, but that's where I ended up. I parked my truck, I got out and went to the gravestone. And as I did, I approached the gravestone and got there, I started weeping uncontrollably to the point where I was physically shaking. Have you ever experienced that? Like, that's what, like, I was out of control. I remember clearly being afraid of what life was going to be without my dad. And he was our provider. How are we going to take care of ourselves? I was mad. I was crushed. I was scared. I was overwhelmed by it all. And in that moment, physically shaking in front of my my dad's gravestone out in the middle of the cemetery, I heard God speak to me. And it wasn't an audible voice, like if there was anybody else around, which there wasn't, but if there was, they wouldn't have heard a voice in the, in the sky or anything like that. It wasn't audible. My ears didn't hear it, but I heard it nonetheless. It was crystal clear. And the words that I heard come from a scripture in Matthew chapter 8. It was one verse from Matthew chapter 8. And actually, it wasn't even the whole verse. It was just part of the verse, maybe half the verse. And what I heard that day was this. O you of little faith. It hit me like a ton of bricks. It still does to this day, remembering it. I heard it and I thought, what are you doing, God? I'm here hurting like I've never hurt before. I'm freaking out about my dad, my family, my life, my future. And why would you take this moment to tell me that I have little faith? To call out my lack of faith. Why would you kick me while I'm down, God? Why now? I just can't do this. Just crush me if that's what you want. This is torture. I shouted back at God and there was no response. No more voice. Nothing. Just the echo of those words that I heard. Oh, you of little faith. I stayed there so long I lost track of time. I have no idea how long I sat by his graveside. It could have been several minutes. It could have been hours. I really don't know. But eventually I went home feeling numb and honestly feeling lost in a way that I didn't think was humanly possible. So that night in my bedroom alone with the door locked, the radio cranked up, the world shut out, I kept repeating those words that I had heard. Oh, you have little faith, you little faith. And they just ate at me. 
And I knew that it was scripture, and at that point I couldn't exactly place it. I was trying to ignore it because I was mad at God. But eventually my curiosity won out over my stubbornness. I grabbed my Bible, and after some searching, I found where it came from. That verse is in the middle of a story that goes like this. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And he replied, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. After I read that, I sat on my bed and I cried because I realized that God wasn't telling me in that moment that I didn't have enough faith. But God was pointing me to a time where other people were afraid because their circumstances felt out of their control. They were in this storm that was threatening to drown them and they had no way of fixing it themselves. And so God is pointing me to this story and it's a story where Jesus was in the boat with them and he calmed the storm. God showed up in my darkest, most pain-filled moments and said, I'm here with you. I've got you. That moment changed my life. I'm probably a pastor today because I learned more about God's love for me and what a personal relationship with Jesus looks like in that moment than I thought was possible. God was no longer some abstract idea, but was intimate and personal with me. I could trust this God. He cared for me. But that didn't fix everything, so if you fast forward a few months later, home was still difficult. We're still dealing with life without dad. I don't know if it was I got another argument with my mom or what. I was just upset about something. But like, again, I found myself struggling, looking for answers. And so you know what I did? I hopped in my truck and drove down the road to the cemetery and walked up to my dad's gravestone. And you know what happened? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. No words, no scriptures, no great revelation. Nothing. There was just one sad kid standing in the middle of a cemetery hoping that nobody's really paying attention to him. I got to the point where I felt like kind of an idiot and got back in my truck and went home. I never again had that holy moment at the cemetery. I never heard God's audible voice at that cemetery again. But that's because God doesn't live there. (laughs) He met me there. One time when I really needed God to show up, he showed up where I was, but that's not where God lives. That's not the only place where God could be found. And since that time, God has shown up in my life in many ways, you know, all kinds of ways over the years. God has used songs, friends, prayers, family, movies, pastors, churches, different life circumstances, school, and so on, and so much more to meet me. I have found myself having holy moments all over the place. But the reality is it's easy to be like Peter and see God in the, maybe the rules of the culture, 
Peter was ready to reject the new thing God was doing because he had found God in the law before, and he almost missed what God was up to now because of what God had said and done in the past, because of how he had experienced God before. Or it's easy to be like me and to see God in the thing where God felt the most present and to hold on to that and to think that's where I need to go to find God again. I went back to that cemetery because that's where God felt most real to me. But it was never the same. We all have this tendency to want to grab a hold of God in that experience or in that moment where we've experienced something meaningful. We all have this tendency to want to find God in the places where we found God before. But the truth is God doesn't just want us to have that one moment That one experience, that one song, that one type of music, that one place that you remember fondly. God wants to engage with you today. God wants you to be open so you can hear God again calling you to take your next step. To be ready to meet God where you are right now. Be ready for God to do a new work in your life. So whether you're eight or 88, or anywhere else on the spectrum, God is not done breathing his spirit into you. God is not done being the God who is present with you right now. And so our goal as Christ followers is not to get back to some place, some moment in time, or some feeling where we met God. Our goal is to walk with God each day, receiving New, the Spirit, which will lead us in faith and in holiness. Church, and I believe this with all that is within me that God wants to breathe His Spirit into our church. God has a mission and a calling for this place, for these people, for this church that is bigger and alive in such a new and dynamic way. And that's not criticism of where we've been. I'm not trying to compete with memories of the past or criticize anything that's been done. In fact, we're able to be here this morning because for generations, faithful people have continued to walk in faith and carry out the mission that they felt God called them to. But I'm telling you this, God is calling us now. God is stirring up inside people in this church a restlessness and anxiousness and excitement about what God wants to do here. And you might not be in a position to see it from, you know, kind of your perspective in the church, but very rarely does a day go by where I'm not having a conversation with somebody about what God wants them to do or what God is doing in their life. Very rarely do I have a conversation with somebody and it's not like God is doing something in me. What has God got for me next? There's something stirring, something going on. Hardly a day goes by where I don't have one of those types of conversations. And the truth is, it's not easy to be called out of what is comfortable or to be called out of what is familiar. But the Gospel of Mark chapter 2 says you can't put new wine in old wineskin. And so God, who wants to pour new life into this church, that will call us to the mission that God has for us now. But God won't pour new wine into vessels that aren't prepared for it. And I'm certain as much as anything that God is preparing this church as a new wineskin right now. And so our job 
isn't to do all the planning and figure out how to make it work. And that's hard for me to say, because <laughs> that's my tendency. I want to plan and make it all work. Our job isn't to accumulate resources so God has enough to work with. Our job isn't even to try and shape this church so that like, people drive by and like us. <laughs> oh, look at those people. They're pretty cool. That's not our job. Our job is to be open to what God is doing in you so that you can hear God calling you to take your next step. If it's been years since you've had the sense that God was at work in your life, it's a good possibility that you've kind of closed yourself off to what the next thing God is calling us to do. Maybe you're expecting God to show up exactly how God has always shown up. Unintentionally, many of us limit what we think God can do or will do. Like I said at the beginning, this is a hard lesson and this is what I've been wrestling with for a long time. God might show up the way that God showed up last time. But that's not the only way. So I'm certain that God still speaks to us today. I know that God's spirit still blows throughout the world gathering whoever is willing to be caught up in the spirit, in this wind. Jesus stands still today at the door and knocks, wanting us to open it again each and every day. So the invitation for today, the response to this story in Peter, is to tell God that you are open to see what God's next word to you might be. You're invited to let go of all these thoughts and feelings that attempt to dictate to God how God has to show up. Peter denied God because of something God had said in the past. He tried to wrestle with him. He tried to argue with him. He tried to fight the new thing God was doing in his life because of the old thing God did in his life. But instead, be open to a new word from God. And if that makes you anxious or uncomfortable, you can tell that to God too. <laughs> as, a, as a pastor, I have told God often, hey, this is kind of shaky ground I feel like I'm standing on. <laughs> I'm kind of uncomfortable right now. And he continues to call and equip and support. Have a holy moment. Let God give you a vision of what is next to come, both in your individual life, in your families, but also as part of First Church. God is up to something. I'm going to invite the praise team to come as I... Uh, conclude with a word of prayer.